Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Happy Sabbath, friends. As we are worshiping in these dystopian times, it strikes me that crises can either force us to cleave or it can call us to cling. And my prayer for you today is that as we emerge from this time of trouble, you may come out of the season in life with a deeper understanding of who you are and who God is. Now, on that day, well, on that day it was all ruined. And it hadn't even been her fault. She had worked diligently. She had finished two weeks ahead in order to tinker and toil. Not that tinkering was ever needed. Her work was always flawless. Only on that particular day, oh, the water main broke. And now, now it was all ruined, all that work. The bridesmaids' dresses, the hundreds of yards of fabric, the endless stitching by hand, the sewing, the cutting, the fittings and the countless consultations, first with the mother of the bride and then with the bride and then with the two in tandem, all for naught. It was all ruined. And so on that morning, Anne Lowe did the only thing she could do. She wiped her tears off and went back to work. She would rebuild and recreate those dresses She would pull all-nighters if she needed to. She would call in every seamstress she knew, every favor she was owed. Now, she had expected to net around $700 with the project, but after all the cost overages, she was going to end up owing $2,000. Not to worry. Money, after all, doesn't mean everything. And this became a mantra that she would repeat to herself, coupled with a phrase, You have to spend money to make money. Isn't that what her clients always told her? And so she would keep repeating, money doesn't mean everything. Until one day, one day she didn't need to repeat it anymore. You see, Anne realized that this would be the wedding of the year, maybe even the decade. Oh, and think about the adulation, the fame, the recognition. To be sure, money couldn't mean everything. And so she would take heart in this. As she stood up, her back sore from another endless night of toil. And then she would catch a glimpse. The ivory dress dancing in the dim dawn light. And she knew. Oh, she knew for a second that this is what she needed to do. This is what she was born to do. Her mother was a dressmaker. Her grandmother was a dressmaker. Her great-grandmother used to make dresses for the people that owned her. All the way back in the field, when they picked her up and put her in the big house, thus saving her from a life of hard work in the plantation. And young Anne learned. She learned everything she knew about making dress from the crumpled bits of fabric that would fall at her mother's feet. Uh, She would craft carnations and azaleas, 
make dresses for her dolls. And then at 17, a full apprentice, she would learn about toil and tribulation that comes with work. Her mother died unexpectedly. And then once again, Anne would wipe the tears off her face and deliver an order due to the governor. She would be married a year later with a child and a husband, a husband who believed that making clothes for he and his son ought to be all that Anne could aspire to. But that thought, that thought still crept deep into her mind. How can I stop making beautiful things? It was that thought that drove her to walk aimlessly around a department store in Montgomery when she heard a whisper the whimper from the corner, it was an elderly lady. Anne turned and was prepared to give her a taste of her mind when she was startled. The lady uttered a question. Who designed that dress? Well, I did, and my name is Anne Lowe. A job offer would follow, an invitation to dress socialites in Tampa. And Anne thought for a moment. She remembered her home and her husband waiting there, wanting her there, and she decided to leave. On that day, she penned on her journal, I left my husband today, picked up my things and my son. My grandmother was a slave, and my great-grandmother was a slave, with somebody always telling them what to do and where to go. I refused to be a slave. It is 1916. In no time at all, Anne was dressing all the socialites on Florida's Gulf Coast. Soon a move to New York would follow, and there she would stitch together a career, stitch it from every dress, and from the patronage of wealthy ladies who would utter her name in hushed tones, always weary, always worried, worried that Anne would become too famous, worried that she would get too busy, worried that she could not make beautiful things for them anymore. And so the seamstress dressed. Uh, she dressed Rockefeller and Rothschild, DuPont and Beauvoir. It was Anne who designed Jacqueline Beauvoir's debut dress. And when she was getting ready to get married with Jack, the dashing senator from New England, Anne once again was called upon to build and create beautiful things. Oh, the family never knew. They never knew how close they came to no wedding dresses. I wonder if they could see it. Anne, exhausted driving up the coast, dropping off those beautiful gowns on that mansion nestled against the Atlantic. What was she thinking? What was she thinking as she drove down on that beautiful fall day? The sea salt in her hair, the wind at her back, a perfect Rhode Island evening. I can, I can imagine she had dreams, dreams of fame and fortune. And to be sure, the next day, Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding was the toast of the town. It appeared in every newspaper. There she was in ivory taffeta, Plounging neckline, flowing skirt, carnations and azaleas neatly tucked in the folds, just like when Anne was young. 
but was, was conspicuously absent from the newspaper was any mention of the dress designer. A few years later, when Jackie was first lady and every woman in America wanted to know what she wore, an intrepid newspaper asked the question, who designed your wedding dress? Jackie shrugged and said, some woman, not haute couture. Oh, this incensed Anne. Not the lack of recognition. She had gotten used to toiling in the darkness. But to re be referred as just some woman, not as a master craftsperson designing art, oh, that incensed her. She wrote a letter to Kennedy, never heard back. A few years later, the IRS came after her, some business of unpaid taxes. She was forced to dissolve her shop and take up work being an in-house designer for Saks Fifth Avenue. In 1981, she gave her last interview. Glaucoma had robbed her of her sight. Oh, how she missed work. That work that gave meaning to days that bled, it bled into sleepless nights. She held no resentment, none for Jackie or for the countless wealthy women who maintained her toiling in the shadows. Instead, instead Anne was content. Today, well today her dresses are at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the African American Museum of History and Culture. Today, Today, she is still referred to as some woman and not hot couture. But maybe, and just maybe, as we're pausing in the midst of social distancing, as we are locked in and isolated, alienated for the world, maybe we can pause and utter her name, Anne Lowe. Anne Lowe. Well, after all, what's in a name? It's merely a litany of letters that attempt to describe and define something. And we Adventists know a lot about names, don't we? In the 1860s, the pain of disappointment had passed. It had lost its sting. And the former pariahs of the Millerite movement were once again reintegrating into everyday life. They were butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. And they came together. They came together to define a name, a name that could give them an ethos, a name that would coalesce his return and our response. Adventist. That was the name. And so today, today, once again, we turn to scripture. We do so in the hope of redefining our identity. We do so in the hope of hearing a new word from the Lord. We do so by going to that, the most Adventist of all scriptures. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it with me to Revelation chapter 4. And today we will be focusing on verses 9 through 11. John the Revelator begins to write and simply says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too he too shall drink of the wine of God's fury, which has to be drunk by full strength, which is poured out to everyone in a cup of wrath. In a cup 
of wrath. I must confess that I enter this text with trepidation. And preaching from Revelation is always perilous business. The landscape of Patmos is treacherous terrain. But we do so with humility. We do so with humility for in conversing and dialoguing with the revelator, we too have the hope of receiving a new name. But this is a tough text, isn't it? I mean, the initial temptation is to engage in a superficial reading or maybe, just maybe, to take some interpretive leaps that might make you feel a bit more comfortable with it. But the reality is that we must dialogue with the book. We must wrestle with it. We must fight with it. John has been difficult. It's been difficult for people that have read it. It's been difficult to discern his message as he puts pen to paper in Revelation. Listen to the words of that old reformer, Martin Luther, as he describes the book. He writes, I miss more than one thing in the book, and it makes me consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. For me, it is reason enough not to think highly about Christ, because he is neither taught nor known in it. Now, the critique of Revelation doesn't get better when you jump from the arena of theology to psychology. And the words of Carl Jung, a veritable Orgy of hatred, wrath, and vindictiveness, blind and destructive fury that revels in fantastic images of terror, of blood and fire, which overwhelm a world that Christ has just restored to its original state of innocence and loving communion with God. As we delve into difficult texts, I want to be faithful. And being faithful recognizes that there must be another option. There must be an alternative. For it almost seems as if John is pointing us back in the chapter. And you remember, he has described in great detail the intoxicating powers of Babylon's wine. And if we're not careful, we might even believe that John is attempting to tell us that that which Babylon brews cannot compare or compete with the vintage that is about to be poured from God's cup. And if this is the correct reading, then God's story and the dragon's story become one. They become connected in an ideological framework where both will appeal to torture. And the only difference will be that God strikes the harder blow. So my friend, there must be another way. We must find another way to read it, to dialogue with it, to eat this book. Maybe, maybe we should start by recognizing, by recognizing that apocalyptic genre is by nature a fantastic vehicle to deconstruct and then reconstruct our views of reality. And let's face it, there are some views, some images, and some ideas that need deconstruction. 
visions of martyrs being thrown before magistrates and then summarily sent to the arena are an oversimplification of the community inhabited by John the Revelator. To be sure, the book is intended to provide some comfort. But what if, what if God inspired John to create crises, to yell out in a crowded theater, fire, fire, with the breathless hope that that cry might awaken us from our slumber as we walk placidly through the streets. The outset of the book seems to make that point. The Sardinians and the Laodiceans are not called to task by society. No, they are called to account by Jesus. The malady of both their churches is that they have accommodated to the ethos and the values of the dominant culture. The real danger is always there, always lurking, to mix and match, to become part of the world, to sell out for convenience sake. And when external pressures meet our internal proclivities, Typically, prophecy becomes pantomime. And so John will continue. He will continue pushing and prodding us. He too will drink. He will drink of the wine of God's fury. And he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Please don't turn off the TV. Don't shut your computer. Bear with me. Bear with me, even if John isn't making it any easier. For visions of sinners suffering in the presence of the Lamb are extremely hard to reconcile with that God, that Jesus of the Gospels that cries out and prays for his tormentors. And you can hear a faint echo of the words all across Patmos. Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. And once again, the temptation is there. The temptation exists to make an interpretive leap. To find a way that this difficult text might accommodate us, might make us more comfortable. But I want to be faithful. And you want to be faithful. We are, after all, a people of the book, born and bred by the book. And so... If we continue as Adventists to believe that John has a message for our time, then it might do us well to understand his time. Listen to the picture that the great historian Plutarch gives us of life in Rome while John is penning Revelation. Plutarch writes, speaking of Rome, God laid her foundations yoked fortune and virtue together so as to use her special power to create for all men a wealth-giving and secure mooring cable, an abiding element, an anchor in the surge and drift of this shifting world. But what happens to those? To those who don't believe the propaganda. To those who dare to dream. Who in their heart know that when God calls a person, he bids them come and die to those who will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You see, Revelation 9, 14, 9 through 11 cannot be un 
understood or even read apart from the context of a marginalized community that is uttering desperate pleas for God to invade history, for divine justice to become real in the here and now. Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, that great New Testament scholar, probably puts it best when she says that if we fail to acknowledge that revelation wishes for the conversion of all nations, then, then we will fail to see that nowhere in the text is a theology of revenge and hate advocated. For throughout the book, the work pushes a theology of justice. You see, sometimes it's very difficult. It's difficult to distinguish picture from proposition. And so John will keep pushing. He'll keep working through and with us. He'll keep asking those prodding questions. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Which gets me to think and wonder. Wonder what John is attempting to do. After all, the language of sulfur and fire doesn't belong to God. Ideas of torture are implemented by demonic powers throughout the book. Even the calamity of the seven trumpets is ushered in by demonic forces where God only stands and enacts restraint. So what if? Just what if the wrath of God really means the removal of that restraint for these demonic forces to now operate freely? Well, if that is the case, then somebody else is responsible for the horror. The great New Testament theologian Jacques Ellul in talking about this particular passage, says that the action of these satanic powers that in very circumstances provoke death in the apocalypse and not all, not even directly, the action of God upon man. Ah, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is trying to remember the readers of Revelation as we are hunkered together witnessing these scenes of horror that the Lamb hasn't been left unscathed. What is the response of God to the violence that pervades the world? Well, Revelation will tell us. It'll tell us all the way back in chapter 5. The cosmic conflict that ethereal quandary will be resolved by the lamb. But how does that lamb appear? Yeah, you remember. He was slain. You see, God has not remained untouched by violence. Uh, the Prince of Peace enacts and continues to speak peace and justice even to those who are marginalized and oppressed. 
And even as these notions come, we recognize, we recognize that in Revelation something has happened, a grammatical nuance that we might miss, and so we must read carefully. For this idea of fire and torment, sulfur and torture, appears in the passive. Our own Sigvi Tonsted refers to this as the present, the demonic passive. And it almost has a tinge, a faint reflection of that prophetic call by Isaiah. In chapter 14, verse 20, Isaiah writes, You yourselves have destroyed your people. You have finished with the land. See, to be marked, to be marked means now to belong and to be at the whim of the name and character expressed by that mark. It isn't God who punishes. It isn't God who calls forth fire and brimstone. When read, when read as an objectifying statement of the end for those who are sinners, this passage, this passage contains intolerable cruelty. But when it is read as a confessional statement, uttered to a community that is huddled together on the margins, then it coalesces perfectly with the sayings from the carpenter of New Jerusalem, from that Nazarene man that painted scenes, Scenes of servants being led out into the darkness, teeth gnashing. Or what about those moments when lamb and goat are separated and the righteous go for eternal reward and the unrighteous for eternal punishment. But in the mythopoetic language lies the truth. It is a truth that is present and part and parcel of everyone who has dared to travail the secluded confines of Patmos. The Lamb will win. Let us not confuse picture with proposition. Oh, and I almost missed it. Do you see the end of verse 11? There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast. Too often we've made this about the ultimate state of those who are condemned, but this isn't what John is talking about. What really is being said, what he is attempting to convey is that the real tragedy of this story is that those who have sinned will receive no rest. And ultimately, ultimately rest is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. 
And so, so even as we are reflecting on these ideas, we hear a call. Ah, this calls, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, those who obey the commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And suddenly, suddenly the landscape has shifted. No longer are we in a cosmic conflict. The locale has moved from the peaks of Mount Megiddo and Zion to the inner confines of my heart. And we recognize that to keep the commandments is to stay connected to the faith proclaimed by Jesus and that lamb-like communities that follow him have recognized that what he desires is our links and not lists. And so we began to inhabit a new space, one where we move and breathe and recognize that prophetic living is the art of being alienated from the world, of being isolated while still believing and caring for the world that the Lamb came to die for. A Basque country in northern Spain is an autonomous community. It is nestled between peak and valley, cliff and coast. And right in the middle is the Ebro Valley. Its Mediterranean climate and expansive vineyards have made it one of the most popular tourist destinations in Europe, which is why it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that a mere 83 years ago, that place, oh, that place was marred by war. On April 26, 1937, a Condor squadron of the German Luftwaffe, directed by Colonel Wolfram von Richthofen, dropped its deadly, deadly payload on the city of Guernica. The sleepy hamlet, which would become a center for the Republican resistance in the Spanish War, was besieged by bombs for over two hours. When it ended, the experience was nothing more than a blimp on the German war machine experiment, a precursor to the blitzkrieg tactics that would swallow Europe whole. But for one man, for one man exiled in Paris, this would become a cataclysmic event, one that would tear a hole in the very fabric of time and space. It would inspire him inspire him to create, to create the most beautiful painting and the most well-renowned work he would ever make. Pablo Picasso's depiction of that day can be found in the famous piece Guernica. On the one side, you see a bull ravaging through a field full of twisted corpses. No one can stand in his way. Picasso's attempting to show the chaos of combat and how conflict always spills into civilization. But to ask, to ask the question that we want to ask the revelator, did it really happen that way? Is Picasso's impressionistic interpretation of the events real? Is like asking Edgar Allan Poe if 
the raven ever said nevermore. Or like quizzing Beethoven about the amount of serotonin and dopamine, oxytocin and endorphins that flow through the body when one hears the ode to joy. You see, art is great because it provides description. It shares information when words have failed us. And that is what the revelator is doing. He is both exhorting and informing, moving and asking us to return, pushing us while reminding us of what we have forgotten when words fail. That old American preacher, Robert Lowry, who was enraptured by visions of revelation, thoughts of seas of glass and meetings by the river, captures a saying in his poem. Lowry writes, My life flows eternally, eternally singing above earth's lamentation. And I can hear, I can hear the hymn that hails a new creation. So, my inmost peace cannot be shaken when to the rock I'm clinging. If Jesus is Lord, then how? Oh, how can I stop my singing? Revelation is more. It's more than we have allowed it to be. And the third angel's message is more than just a clarion call for Adventists. It is the response of a God who is always engaging beastly powers and the dragon's actions. It is a response that makes us uncomfortable, but that will not tolerate superficial readings. It is a response that will cause us to sing. So my dear friend, today sing. Sing in isolation. Sing as life has alienated you from those you love. Sing a new song. Because revelation is not intended to be learned. It is to be lived. And that is why John, oh, John that seer invites us to utilize all our senses. We can see. We can see and hear what John sees and hears in the hopes that we'll catch a glimpse of the world as God sees it. We will taste the wine and smell the sulfur and our hands will be marred, our foreheads bruised by the mark, but we will still sing. We will sing because our Jesus has given us a new name, that of sons and daughters. So may God richly bless you.